Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Savior Said. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. This is the episode for October 26th through November 1st, Mormon 1 through 6, I Would That I Could Persuade All to Repent. And before we get started, I want to give a special shout out to the Parowan Utah Stake. Um, They had me come be their keynote speaker for their Family History Discovery Day. And because it was virtual, I could be their keynote speaker even though I was still in Alabama. So I recorded that keynote address and I put it out on my social media and on my YouTube channel. I specifically made it very generic so that if you are doing a family history discovery day in your stake and you just need like someone to do like some kind of talk or whatever in your family history thing, you can use that. So go find it on um, YouTube. I also put it out as bonus content. It's all over the place. So um, the only thing is if you do use it in your stake, I just ask that you email me and let me know so that I can say hi to your stake and be excited that you're using it. So um, anyway, shout out to Parwan Utah for inviting me. You guys are awesome and it was a great experience. All right, so let's get into this week's episode. So as I was reading Mormon 1 through 6, the thing that I kept thinking is I'm like, Mormons saw unimaginable horror, like just unimaginable violence and the most grotesque images of human savagery that like I could possibly think of. And he saw it from a very young, early age. And I started thinking about like, what did this do to him psychologically? You know, did he suffer from PTSD? Like, was there long-lasting psychological consequences from the things that he saw in the society that he lived in? And it doesn't necessarily say that there was. I mean, he kind of dwells on it a little bit. So I think maybe, you know, obviously it was first and foremost in his mind. But it also made me realize that sometimes when we are doing what's right and we are on the Lord's errand and we are in the spot where he's put us, Sometimes it's not the best environment, and sometimes it will leave emotional scars. And if we keep on pulling through, though, the Lord will be there with us, and our testimony will still stay strong, and we can still stay close to Him, just like Mormon did. So that's really the lesson, the overall lesson that I learned this week. Um, But we're going to go in and talk a little bit about specific thoughts that I had Also, um, conference last weekend was amazing. I loved it. So I'm weaving in some of the talks that I especially was impressed with from conference into this week's episode. So you're going to hear a little bit of that too. Okay, let's start out though. Um, The introduction says, Mormon spared us the full account of the awful scene of wickedness and bloodshed that he saw among the Nephites. But what did he did record in Mormon 1 through 6 is enough to remind us how far righteous people can fall. Amid such pervasive wickedness, no one could blame Mormon for becoming weary and even discouraged. 
Yet through all that he saw and experienced, he never lost his sense of God's great mercy and his conviction that repentance is the way to receive it. And although Mormon's own people rejected his pleading invitations to repent, he knew that he had a larger audience to persuade. Behold, he declared, I write unto all the ends of the earth. In other words, he wrote to you. And his message to you today is the same message that could have saved the Nephites in their day. Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent and prepare to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's the introduction. And that's the same message that Mormon has for us today is that Christ is waiting with open arms. He is always there for us. We just need to turn to him. The first section says, I can live righteously despite the wickedness around me. And in this particular section, the thing that really stood out to me as I was thinking about this, you know, Mormon in the middle of like all this wickedness and grossness around him is that he didn't get mad. I think it would be very easy for me to just get like really angry and start lashing out and um, just, I guess at one point he refused to be their leader anymore. So maybe he was a little angry there, but he... At all times, he was concerned about their welfare, their spiritual welfare, and even at other times, their physical welfare, because he went back and led them again, even though he knew that there was like no chance that they would actually win. So he still loved them and he still had concerns. So my question was, is like, how do we still love people when they are so obviously doing things that hurt each other or hurt us and hurt our family? Because remember, he also had a son, and he's raising his son in this culture that is so damaging. I would be pretty mad. I'd be like, you guys, you're messing up my kid. Like, stop, you know? How how did he do that without getting really angry at them? Well, this is where one of the conference talks from this past conference comes into play. Dallin H. Oaks, Love Your Enemies. Beautiful talk and exactly what I needed to hear for multiple reasons. Um, I absolutely loved his talk. So here's one of the things that stood out to me when I went back and read his talk and compared it with like the account of Mormon and what Mormon was seeing. So it would be very easy for Mormon to think of the people around him as his enemies because they were the enemies of Christ. And, you know, if he is, you know, holding on to his testimony of Christ and the people around him are doing pretty much everything opposite of what they should be doing. Like, again, it would be very easy to think of them as your enemies. So here's what Down H. Oaks would give, the advice that Down H. Oaks would give to Mormon. He says, but how do we do this? Especially how do we learn to love our adversaries and our enemies? The Savior's teaching not to contend with anger is a good first step. Pause. So you notice that's what Mormon did is he did not contend with anger with any of them. Several times he wanted to go, you know, preach repentance unto them, and he was blocked from doing that by the Lord. And even when he was allowed to go preach repentance to them and it didn't work, he never fought with them. Okay? He always just rooted for them to turn turn to Jesus. Unpause. Here we go. The devil is the father of contention, and it is he who tempts men to contend with anger. He promotes enmity and hateful relationships among individuals and within groups. President Thomas S. Monson taught that anger is Satan's tool, and to be angry is to yield to the influence of Satan. No one can make us angry. It is our choice. Anger is the way to division and enmity. 
we move toward loving our adversaries when we avoid anger and hostility towards those with whom we disagree. It also helps if we are even willing to learn from them. Among other ways to develop the power to love others is the simple method described in a long-ago musical. When we are trying to understand and relate to people of a different culture, we should try getting to know them. In countless circumstances, strangers' suspicion or even hostility give way to friendship or even love when personal contacts produce understanding and mutual respect. All right, pause there. That was one of the things that I noticed. Um, Mormon there in his society, it would be very easy for the people who are around him and making wrong choices. And he's constantly like, guys, you're making wrong choices. You need to come back to Christ. It'd be very easy for these people to be like, oh, it's Mormon again. Just go away, Mormon. We don't want to hear how bad we are. You know, it'd be very easy for them to kind of just like, like, I guess, avoid him or whatever. But he comes back to be their commander and they accept him and they want him to come be their commander. Um, And I think that maybe they understood that Mormon was preaching to them from a place of love, that he truly cared about them. And that helped them connect to him and accept him when he did come back to lead them again. Okay, unpause, back to Dallin A. Jokes. An even greater help in learning to love our adversaries and our enemies is to seek to understand the power of love. Here are three of the many prophetic teachings about this. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that it is a time-honored adage that love begets love. Let us pour forth love, show forth our kindness unto all mankind. President Howard W. Hunter taught the world in which we live would benefit greatly if men and women everywhere would exercise the pure love of Christ, which is kind and meek and lowly. It is without envy or pride. It seeks nothing in return. It has no place for bigotry, hatred, or violence. It encourages diverse people to live together in Christian love regardless of religious belief, race, nationality, financial standing, education, or culture. And President Russell M. Nelson has urged us to expand our circle of love to embrace the whole human family. So if you feel like you are in, oh, end quote, by the way, end quote. So if you feel like you are in a situation like Mormon, not necessarily like that people are chopping each other up around you, but, you know, if you feel like you're in a situation where you are the only one who believes and everybody around you doesn't believe, and not only do they not believe, but sometimes they're actively fighting against the things that you believe, I think that there's some good advice here. Expand your circle of love and embrace the whole human family. You know, the same thing that Mormon did, where he just loved them, and he was so concerned about their welfare. He wasn't angry with them. He didn't turn them away. I mean, he opened his arms, and he constantly prayed for them and worried about what he could do to save them. I'm just amazed at the depth of the love that he had, because I don't know that I would have had that staying power with that love. Like, I think after the first couple years, I've been like, all right, throw my hands up in the air. Y'all on your own. Like, (laughs) y'all done did this to yourselves. You made your bed, sleep in it. You know, I think I would have just written them off, but he kept going back and again and again and again, trying to save them. So that was one of the things that really stood out to me about Mormon this, this, um, while we're reading this passage here in the scriptures. But now, come follow me says, As you read Mormon 1, consider contrasting the qualities and desires of Mormon with those of his people. 
Note the consequences that came to him and them, and what do you learn that inspires you to live righteously in a wicked world? So I went in and actually made a chart, okay, between Mormon and his people. So this is from Mormon 1. These are the things that it kind of, like, observations about Mormon and his character and his behavior. So the first one came from verse 2, which is, I perceive that thou art a sober child and art quick to observe. So Mormon was very serious. And he was also very smart, it sounds like. You know, the serious thing, the sober child thing kind of stands out to me because I think of a lot of the preteens I know, and they're kind of goofy. So the ones who are serious about learning, they really do kind of stand out. And in the situation we see in two, where Amaron comes up to Mormon and you know, Mormon even says, I began to be learned somewhat after the manner of learning of my people. So this is obviously in an educational context. And because we know that Mormon is the guy who has compiled the Book of Mormon, and we've like seen his thoughts on different aspects of the gospel as we've gone throughout the Book of Mormon, he's obviously educated. Um, obviously, he has a literary education because he's influenced the Book of Mormon and the editing and everything that put it together more than probably any other person in the Book of Mormon. So we know he has a literary education. Also, he talks a lot about different places geographically. So, and even it talks about in 6, where he was carried by his father into the land southward, even to land of Zarahemla, he had a really good understanding of geography and the area where he lived. And also, the way that he's describing the battles and like the companies that he's listing out, like this person fell with their 10,000, this person fell with this 10,000. Um, he also had a great military education, it sounds like as well. So Amron was able to figure out like that there's something special about this kid early on. And then when Mormon is 16 and he goes on to become a leader of an army, there was also something special about him at that point too, that someone noticed because they put him as a leader there in the army. So That was the first thing I noticed is that there was something special about him, but that he was also sober and quick to observe. We're going to talk about that being quick to observe thing a little bit later, but that was the first thing I noticed about Mormon. In verse five, he remembered the things which Amaron commanded me. So he remembered. We've talked a lot in the episodes about how important it is to remember um, and how the Lord emphasizes over and over again in scriptures about the importance of remembering him, remembering Christ, remembering the gospel of Christ, remembering the things that we should do to help remember him. It seems like the people around Mormon forgot. And I know that this is like Mormon remembering something in the context of being like, I remember what Amaron said about getting the records, but it also would make sense to me that Mormon remembered the Lord and the goodness of the gospel and the goodness of Christ. And that was one of the reasons he was able to stay firm and steadfast in a culture and society that was so wicked. So that was Mormon. Then let's talk about his people. So in verse 13, it says, Wickedness did prevail upon the face of the whole land, insomuch that the Lord did take away his beloved disciples, that's the three Nephites, and the work of miracles and of healing did cease because of the iniquity of the people. So, and then in 14, it says, and there were no gifts from the Lord and the Holy Ghost did not come upon any because of the wickedness of their unbelief. So you have Mormon who's remembering things and who is serious and taking the gospel seriously. And then you have people who it seems like they are taking wickedness like real seriously to the point where the Holy Ghost has been removed. The gifts of the Holy Ghost and the Lord were gone. The work of miracles and healing did cease. Um, 
the presence of the Lord basically was removed from them, but the presence of the Lord was obviously with Mormon. 15. It talks about him being 15 years of age and being somewhat of a sober mind. Therefore, I was visited of the Lord and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. So his people are literally having the spirit of the Lord removed from them, whereas Mormon in 15 says he was visited of the Lord. Does that mean that Christ appeared to him? I don't know. I don't know what visited of the Lord means in that context, but it definitely means that there was good stuff going on in Mormon's life, especially much better than what was going on in his society where the spirit of the Lord had been completely removed. Next, we see in 16 and 17 that he wanted to preach repentance to them. It says, and I did endeavor to preach unto this people, but my mouth was shut and I was forbidden that I should preach unto them. For behold, they had willfully rebelled against their God and the beloved disciples were taken away out of the land because of their iniquity. But I did remain among them, but I was forbidden to preach unto them because of the hardness of their hearts. And because of the hardness of their hearts, the land was cursed for their sake. And he just wants to preach to them. And that was his goal was to preach to them and bring them back to Christ. But they were so wicked and they had willfully rebelled against God that his mouth was literally shut. And I was like, why would Heavenly Father allow this to happen? I mean, he wants to go preach to them. But he's like shutting his mouth. Why would this happen this way? And I started thinking about that. And, you know, okay, so let's say that Heavenly Father let him go preach repentance to the people. And what if it made them, because they were so wicked, what if it made them really angry? And what if they killed him? At this point, we would not have the rest of his story. We would not have the plates hidden up in Camorra. You know, we would not see all the different things that he brings to pass. Um, what if they had shunned him? Then he would not have been the leader of their armies and things like that. So for whatever reason, at this point, the Lord shuts his mouth and keeps him from preaching unto the people. I suspect because of the negative reactions that the people would have had to him. You know, at some point, he's still accepted by them because he does go and he leads their armies and things like that. So he does have some small way to influence them for good. Um, And I don't necessarily know that he would have had that if he had the stigma of being one of those like street corner preachers, you know. So I think that that may be kind of why the Lord shut his mouth in this occasion. And then in 19, and we read even more like how bad they'd gotten, where it came to pass that there were sorceries and witchcrafts and magics, and the power of the evil one was wrought upon all the face of the land, even unto fulfilling all the words of Abinadi and also Samuel the Lamanite. So that shows me too that Mormon also knew the scriptures because he was familiar with Abinadi and he was familiar with Samuel the Lamanite. So not only had he kept these records, but he'd been reading it. Of course he was reading it because he was editing it and putting it all together. So of course he'd be really familiar with the text, but it just reminded me again, just reminded me again that he was very familiar with the text that he had been carrying around, right? Okay, so the next thing Come Follow Me says is the section about godly sorrow leads to true and lasting change. It says, When Mormon saw his people's sorrow, he hoped they would repent. But their sorrowing was not unto repentance. It was not the kind of godly sorrow that leads to real change. To understand the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, consider making a chart where you can record what you learn from Mormon 10 through 2, 10 through 15 about these two types of sorrow. Your chart might look something like this, and they give a little example of a chart. Okay, so here's what I thought. 
you know, I've been listening to um, a book on tape. It's about psychology and, you know, emotions and stuff like that. And it talks about the difference between guilt and shame. And guilt is something we feel internally where we're like, okay, we've done something to violate our own personal code of ethics. And it's guilt is a motivation that helps us to change and to realign ourselves with our code of ethics. Shame is something that when we violated a code of ethics that we think others will see or how others will perceive us that we feel badly about. Like, do you see the difference? Guilt is an inward thing, whereas shame is all based on like outward reaction. That is kind of like, kind of how I saw godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is something that happens internally and it is something that leads us to change. Whereas worldly sorrow is something that happens on the outside of us. We're worried about outside impacts, outside influence, and we change for something outside of us, not necessarily internally. And I think it's that internal change that really brings us to Christ. You know, I can say, I'm not going to do this thing, you know, until I'm blue in the face. But if I haven't decided in my heart not to do that thing, my behavior is not going to change, you know? So that was the difference I saw between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And when I go in and actually look at what Mormon was teaching the people. And we can see this in Mormon 2, and I'm going to do 13. 13 is worldly sorrow. So this is the shame that the people are feeling, or the worldly sorrow. They were not into repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned, because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. So they didn't do it because of the goodness of God, but they did it because they knew that they were going to get in trouble. You know, that wasn't an internal change. That was an outward, like, consequence that was influencing them. And then in 14, he describes the godly sorrow as coming unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits. You know, a broken heart and a contrite spirit are all things that happen internally inside of us. It's our own personal compass realigning versus, like, our compass being realigned by somebody else, you know? That was the difference between the two that I really saw. And then it says, as you reflect on what you learn, consider how it can influence your efforts to overcome sin and become more like Heavenly Father and the Savior. And it says, see also Dieter F. Uchtdorf's talk, You Can Do It Now. I'm really glad it pointed me to this talk because I had never read this before. It was in the October 2013 priesthood session of conference, and I guess I just had never read it before or something. I don't know, but it was a really good talk. So here's a quote from it that talks about godly sorrow. Here we go. Brethren, our destiny is not determined by the number of times we stumble, but by the number of times we rise up, dust ourselves off, and move forward. When we stray, when we fall, or depart from the way of our Heavenly Father, the words of the prophets tell us how to rise up and get back on track. Of all the principles taught by prophets over the centuries, one that has been emphasized over and over again is the hopeful and heartwarming message that mankind can repent, change course, and get back on the true path of discipleship. That does not mean that we should be comfortable with our weaknesses, mistakes, or sins, but there is an important difference between the sorrow for sin that leads to repentance and the sorrow that leads to despair. The Apostle Paul taught, Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Godly sorrow inspires change and hope through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Worldly sorrow pulls us down, extinguishes hope, and persuades us to give in to further temptation. Okay, pause. When I have worked with youth, like young men, young women, 
one of the things I've seen whenever there's been, you know, some question about serious sin and should I go to the bishop? Should I not go to the bishop? Um, I see a lot of godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow come into play because I think sometimes our young men and young women are afraid to go talk to their priesthood leaders because of the worldly sorrow. Like they are afraid of what people are going to think of them. They're afraid of disappointing their parents. They are afraid of, you know, the talk that will happen about them. And that worldly sorrow comes into play. It pulls them down. It extinguishes hope and persuades them to give in to further temptation. You know, if we can get our young men and young women and everyone in general, all of us, to understand that godly sorrow is about love, it's about changing because you love Jesus Christ and because Jesus Christ loves you and your priesthood leaders love you. And that's why you go to them to help, you know, put you back together and with Jesus Christ and the put the atonement in your life. Like that's when godly sorrow takes place. I think our youth especially are very susceptible to worldly sorrow because they do care about what people around them think and how people around them react to them. So um, just something to keep in mind. Okay, so I want to unpause and go back into Dieter F. Uchtdorf's talk. Here we go. Godly sorrow leads to conversion and a change of heart. It causes us to hate sin and love goodness. I love that. Not only are we rejecting sin, but we're loving goodness. Okay, Continuing, it encourages us to stand up and walk in the light of Christ's love. True repentance is about transformation, not torture or torment. Yes, heartfelt regret and true remorse for disobedience are often painful and very important steps in the sacred process of repentance. But when guilt leads to self-loathing or prevents us from rising up, it is impeding rather than promoting our repentance. So do you see that? So when we are stopped from repenting because of self-loathing or being prevented from rising up because of that worldly sorrow, that's not what we need to be feeling. Also, something else that happened in that talk that kind of spoke specifically to me, it was like one of those moments where the Lord's like highlighting things as I'm reading along, like, Lexi, you need to pay attention to this. So um, this doesn't, I guess it kind of ties in a little bit, but not, not really. It was just kind of what I was thinking about this week. But The quote that he has is, One of the adversary's methods to prevent us from progressing is to confuse us about who we really are and what we really desire. We want to spend time with our children, but we also want to engage in our favorite hobbies. We want to lose weight, but we also want to enjoy the foods we crave. We want to become Christ-like, but we also want to give the guy who cuts us off in traffic a peace of mind. Satan's purpose is to tempt us to exchange the priceless pearls of true happiness and eternal values for a fake plastic trinket that is merely an illusion and counterfeit of happiness and joy. That was something I was thinking about this week as, you know, it's our fall break here, which we get a week off in the middle of our fall semester for school. Um, (laughs) Basically, the local tourist areas pressure our politicians into making this choice every year because they get so much money during fall break. But anyways, um, so we have this time off. And so my family is spending it at home currently because of COVID. And this week, there's not really a whole lot to do. So I've been, you know, Netflix binge watching. You know, I, I have a Netflix habit. You guys know this. And I realized I was spending more and more time Netflix binging and less and less time being with my family and less and less time studying my scriptures and less and less time in prayer. And I was living the lives of these people in the shows that I was watching, but I wasn't living my own life. And it was reading this quote that kind of like hit me over the head and was like, duh, Lexi, it's because 
You're not spending time on things that matter. You're spending time on trivial plastic trinkets that are merely an illusion and counterfeit of happiness and joy, like Dieter F. Uchtdorf said. So that really didn't have anything to do really with godly sorrow or worldly sorrow, but but it stood out to me because it helped me identify something in my own personal pattern of behavior that I needed to change. So I thought I'd share that with you guys. Okay, the next section is, I should always acknowledge God's hand in my life. It says, Mormon recorded a weakness he saw in the Nephites. They failed to acknowledge the ways the Lord had blessed them. President Henry B. Eyring urged us to find ways to recognize and remember God's kindness. Pray and ponder, asking the questions, did God send a message that was just for me? Did I see his hand in my life or the lives of my children? I testify that he loves us and blesses us more than most of us have yet recognized. I believe in that so firmly that one of my fervent prayers that I've recently, you know, started adding to my prayers is that my eyes to be open to see the way that the Lord's hand is working in my life. And I've started seeing some of that and especially the long game that I think the Lord Lord is playing with my life. Um, Playing with my life. That sounds like he's not taking it seriously. But no, I feel like there's like, you know, a chess game where you have strategic moves throughout the chess game because you want to bring, you know, your your different chess pieces to a certain point. And I feel like the Lord does that a lot with our lives. And so that's why I'm saying the long game. Like, that's what I mean. Like, he's strategically placing me in different spots in my life to accomplish different things. And I'm starting to see that as I pray, open my eyes. Let me see the way that you're working in my life. Let me see the blessings that you have put into my life that I just go about every day not noticing. And so that was, that's a really good way to remember the Lord. Okay, so going back into Come Follow Me, it says, As you read Mormon 3, 3 and 9, you might ponder how you are acknowledging God's influence in your life. What blessings come when you acknowledge his influence? So let's go back in and read Mormon 3, 3 and 9. It says, And I did cry unto this people, but it was in vain, and they did not realize that it was the Lord that had spared them and granted unto them a chance for repentance. And behold, they did harden their hearts against the Lord their God. And now because of this great thing which my people the Nephites had done, they began to boast in their own strength, and began to swear before the heavens that they would avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren who had been slain by their enemies. So how are we acknowledging God's influence in our lives and what blessings come when we acknowledge his influence? The first thing that I thought of when I, especially when I went back in and read those two scriptures was that when we acknowledge God's influence in our life, we are more humble. You know, we gain humility because we are recognizing that we didn't do that with our own strength. You know, and that's what we see in nine. They began to boast in their own strength and began to swear before the heavens that they would avenge themselves. You know, we did this, so we're going to continue doing this. And um, when we recognize instead that the Lord did this, and we did this through the help of the Lord, we recognize our need for him. And when we recognize our need from him and acknowledge his influence in our life, we get more blessings. And one of those huge blessings that we get is a closer relationship with him. We become closer with him because we know that we need him and we know that he needs to be in our life and we want him to be involved in our life because we see how blessed we are when he is there. And so that was one of the things that I saw when we acknowledge his influence. And then what are the consequences of not acknowledging him? And it says, see Mormon 2, 26. So Mormon 2, 26 says, 
And it came to pass that when they had fled, we did pursue them with our armies and did meet them again and did beat them. Nevertheless, the strength of the Lord was not with us. Yea, we were left to ourselves that the spirit of the Lord did not abide in us. Therefore, we had become weak like unto our brethren. So when we do not acknowledge the Lord in all things, we're weak because we're left on our own, all alone on our own. That's how we are. And we start straying further from him because we are not acknowledging his hand in our life. We're not being grateful and thankful for the things that we have been blessed with from him, you know? So that's one of the things I saw with that section. Okay, the next one, Jesus Christ stands with open arms to receive me. It says, the Nephites rejected Mormon's teachings, but he had hoped that his record would influence you. As you read Mormon 5, 8 through 24 and 6, 16 through 22, what did you learn about the consequences of sin? Well, I can tell you right now, bad, very, very bad. Um, you know, he describes the society falling apart. Um, and so sin on a society causes it to fall apart, which makes me very concerned for our society, guys. Um, yeah, I'm real concerned about that. But continuing on with Come Follow Me. What do you learn from these passages about Heavenly Father and Jesus' feelings towards you even when you sin? That he still loves us. He still is there for us with open arms. How have you felt Jesus Christ reaching out to you with open arms and what do you feel to inspired to do as a result? Well, I felt inspired to share with you another talk from this past conference. And this one is The Exquisite Gift of the Sun by Matthew S. Holland. And yes, Holland, that last name. This is baby Holland. This is Holland Jr. You know I love JRH, but you know, the past couple of conferences I've been a little worried because I'm like, oh, JRH is looking a little old. He's looking a little senior citizen-y. Like, I'm I'm concerned that he's getting older and older. Um, and I'm like, you know, because our, our prophets and our apostles and our general authorities, they do age. And as they age, they do pass away. And I'm kind of dreading the day that... Um, Jeffrey R. Holland passes away because then we will not have him with us, but he we will also not have his amazing conference talks. And so then I see his son get up in conference and give this amazing conference talk, and I feel a little bit better about things because I'm like, well, as long as, you know, we have Matthew Holland around, I think we'll, we'll be okay. Um, you know, JRH will always have a place in my heart, but this Matthew Holland talk was really, really good. It's the exquisite gift of the son. And he says, we must never forget that the very purpose of repentance is to take certain misery and transform it into pure bliss. Thanks to his immediate goodness, the instant we come unto Christ, demonstrating faith in him and a true change of heart, the crushing weight of our sins starts to shift from our backs to his. This is possible only because he who is without sin suffered the insufferable, infinite, and unspeakable agony of every single sin in the universe of his creations. For all of his creations, a suffering so severe blood oozed out of his every pore. From direct personal experience, the Savior thus warns us in modern scripture that we have no idea how exquisite our sufferings will be if we do not repent. But with unfathomable generosity, he also clarifies that I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent, a repentance which allows us to taste the exceeding joy that Alma tasted. For this doctrine alone, I stand all amazed. Yet astonishingly, Christ offers even more. 
Okay, pause at this point. I'm like, I feel like I'm watching an infomercial. But wait, there's more. We will double your offer. Okay. <laughs> All right, unpause. Regardless of the causes of our worst hurts and heartaches, the ultimate source of relief is the same. Jesus Christ. He alone holds the full power of healing balm to correct every mistake, right every wrong, adjust every imperfection, mend every wound, and deliver every delayed blessing. Like witnesses of old, I testify that we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but rather a loving Redeemer who descended from his throne above and went forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, that he may know how to succor his people. For anyone today with pain so intense or so unique that you feel no one else could fully appreciate them, you may have a point. There may be no family member, friend, or priesthood leader, however sensitive and well-meaning each may be, who knows exactly what you are feeling or has the precise words to help heal you. But know this, there is one who understands perfectly what you are experiencing, who is mightier than all the earth, and who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. The process will unfold in his way and on his schedule, but Christ stands ready always to heal every ounce and aspect of your agony. That, okay, close quote, that is what I see as Christ with open arms. That not only are his arms open to us at all times, 24-7, but also his arms have experienced what it is that we're going through. So those are understanding arms that we are running to. It's not like, oh, I love you no matter what you've done, but I don't really understand why you did this. Like, no, no, he knows. He understands what we've been through. And how powerful is that doctrine? Okay, I want to go now out of that section down into where it says ideas for family scripture study and family home evening. The first one from Mormon 1-2 says, what does it mean to be quick to observe? I want to talk about being quick to observe. And you can find insights in Elder David A. Bednar's article, Quick to Observe from the Ensign, December 2006. So this seems like it was a devotional. It looked like it was a devotional, not necessarily a conference talk. So this is David A. Bednar's um, Quick to Observe. So what was the gift of being quick to observe and how was it a blessing to Mormon? This is what David A. Bednar says. In my study of the Book of Mormon, I have been especially impressed with the particular description of Mormon, the principal compiler of the Nephite record. The specific description of this noble prophet to which I would direct our attention is contained in the first five verses of the first chapter of Mormon. And now I, Mormon, make a record of the things which I have both seen and heard, and call it the Book of Mormon. And about the time that Amaron hid up the records unto the Lord, he came unto me, I being about ten years of age. And Amaron said unto me, I perceive that thou art a sober child, and art quick to observe. Therefore, when you are about twenty and four years old, I would that ye should remember the things which ye have observed concerning this people. And behold, ye shall engrave on the plates of Nephi all the things which you have observed concerning this people. And I, Mormon, remembered the things which Amaron commanded me. Please note that the root word observe is used three times in these verses. And Mormon, even in his youth, is described as being quick to observe. As you study and learn and grow, I hope you are also learning about and becoming quick to observe. 
Your future success and happiness will in large measure be determined by the spiritual capacity. Please consider the significance of this important spiritual gift. As used in the scriptures, the word observe has two primary purposes. One use denotes to look or to see or to notice, as we learn in Isaiah 4.20, seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but heareth not. The second use of the word observe suggests to obey or to keep, as is evident in the doctrine of covenants. And blessed are they who have kept the covenant and observed the commandment, for they shall obtain mercy. Thus, when we are quick to observe, we promptly look or notice and obey. Both of these fundamental elements, looking and obeying, are essential to being quick to observe, and the prophet Mormon is an impressive example of this gift in action. You know, okay, so and David A. Bednar, you know, that's the thing I noticed about Mormon is, I, I guess I keep going back to the part where, like, he decided to go and lead the armies again, even though he had no hope of them, you know, actually doing good because he knew that the Lord was not with them. And I was like, why would he do that? Why would he not just be like, y'all go fight it out your toast anyways, you know? But he saw the chance to do good and he went and he did it, you know? Um, it was a chance for him not to give up, I think, and a chance for him to to share the goodness of God that had taken place in his life with those around them, around him, even if they would not believe. Um, and so that's, that's a spot where I saw Mormon is quick to observe. There's one more thing this week, um, that I want to talk about before we end this episode. And that is, um, Mormon 3.12. Yeah. Mormon 3.12. This scripture says, behold, I have led them notwithstanding their wickedness. I have led them many times to battle and had loved them according to the love of God, which was in me with all my heart. And my soul had been poured out in prayer unto my God all the day long for them. Nevertheless, it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. I want to talk about that real quick because that phrase without faith, if taken out of context there, makes Mormon seem like he has lost faith in God, but he hasn't. It's without faith because of the hardness of the hearts. So it wasn't him lacking faith in God. It was him lacking faith in the people that he was around. So I want to make sure you know that because there's also another spot where he talks about without hope. And it's not that he doesn't have hope in God. He does have hope in God. He does have faith in God. He doesn't have hope that the people around him will act in a way that merits that saving from God because they are so wicked and so far gone. Um, and thirteen, or that verse there in 12, I love that so much because it shows you how much he does love them. And it shows you the goodness of God that is still in him that drives him to go and be among them and to serve them even when they are so hard and are so wicked. As they continue to get more and more wicked, especially when they get to the point where they start sacrificing women and children, um, you know, he kind of removes himself, I think. But oh, that just, again, the stuff that he saw, the stuff that he went through, the stuff that his son saw to me, is just so scary. And I am grateful that he was strong enough to do that, to last through it and give us the record that we have. And not only is he going through all this stuff and seeing all this stuff, but also, I mean, he's got a full-time job here as an editor where he's putting and compiling these records. And I think Mormon did a really awesome job, which is why we have the Book of Mormon. He did a great job. So I'm grateful that he had the presence of mind and the strength of character to be able to do all that editing 
while all the crazy other stuff is going on. Like in my mind, I picture him in a cave and I don't know why I picture him in a cave, but somewhere in a cave, like working on the records and stuff like that and compiling them. And like outside there's like clashing of swords and battle going on. And he's just kind of like rolling his eyes like, oh, they're fighting again and going back to his record and writing things down. Like that's how I see it in my mind. So I'm so grateful to him for being strong. I'm grateful that the Lord was with him and strengthened him and allowed him to be able to compile this record for us because there is so much goodness in this record, even in the situations where the people are hard-hearted and they're bad and they choose the wrong thing, we can still learn from that. And we can see the Lord's hand in the record and in our lives too. I hope you will see the Lord's hand in your life this week as you go about your life Pray that you are, your eyes will be opened, that you'll be able to see that, and you will see miracles. I love you guys. I hope you have an excellent week. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.